Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we talk about important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. Today I talk to Dr. Chong Yeh-Wei, former Singapore Medical Association President and current Chairman of the SMA Charity Fund, which was set up in 2013 to alleviate the financial burden of becoming a doctor to students from all three medical schools. Since its inception, the fund has received more than $1 million worth of donations and has been distributed to 106 NUS medical students. Today, we talk about the importance of diversity in medicine and how it can impact patient care. The Singapore Medical Association's surprising role in the limit of $5,000 as school fees for students in the lower quartile and why having doctor parents isn't as useful as you might think. The SMA Charity Fund has been around for a while. I think it's more than 10 years. The original intent of the fund was actually to provide pocket money to medical students, in particular needy medical students from the bottom 20% strata of Singapore. And we know that from data back then, there was actually a survey done by some medical students. And we know that a lot of these needy students were actually helping to support their family and themselves through medical school by giving lots and lots of tuition. So you can imagine already a medical student is quite busy and on top of that have to work to kind of support themselves and their family. So it was with that intent that we wanted to give pocket money to the medical student to help them through medical school. We ended up giving a sum of about $5,000. Originally, I think the survey showed that a sum of about $4,000 was quite useful and we settled on $5,000 a year. So that's been ongoing for now many years, and we haven't quite increased the amount. And it's quite interesting because there's actually some data that shows that this amount is still quite relevant today. Of course, barring inflation and so on. We do not intend for the fund to actually pay for the school fees of the student, because that's really between the university or the government and the student. But we really just want to help the student with some expenses. It is expensive being a student in medical school. You actually have to dress up to go to the ward. You have to commute between varsity and hospital. And medical books and medical instruments are not exactly cheap. So it's actually quite costly to be a medical student. So much so that actually some of the brightest students from the bottom strata of society, even though they can make it to med school, don't apply for med school. Now, coming back to the three things that you wanted me to talk about, which was mobility, diversity, and inequality, I think we start first with diversity. I think diversity is very, very important, especially when it comes to having diversity in our medical doctors. Now, diversity, you can look at it, essentially, it's what we call demographic. And this is basically the origins of a person. And so that'll be race, gender, ethnicity, religion, and so on. Then another aspect to diversity, which is actually experiential. For example, a person's hobbies, his lifestyle, his wants, his likes, his dislikes, and so on. And you have the third aspect about diversity, which is actually cognitive. This cognitive aspect of diversity is how a person thinks about the world around him and so on. And the thing about these three aspects is that demographics, of course, points to the origins of the person. Diversity in terms of experiential, of course, involve the growth of a person as they go through life. And the third part, which is cognitive, some people say is aspirational, how you look at the world and what you intend to shape the world around you or to shape the world for yourself and so on. 
So I think diversity is actually very, very important. And there are a lot of studies that show, for example, I was just looking at something from McKinsey, and they said that actually companies with a lot of cultural diversity or gender diversity or ethnic diversity have actually done very well. So it is actually translated to dollars and cents. It's not just having your token ethnic minority in the company and so on, right? It's actually very, very important. When I was the SMA president from 2009 to 2012, one of the things I actively sought out to do was to increase the number of women in my council. And so the number of women increased under my watch. I think it's very important to have a diverse group of people doing healthcare in med school and therefore in the doctoring community. I think it's really quite important. Already, the patients are so diverse. Your doctors have to be diverse too, right? In order to give a more holistic care. Some of the things I'm a little bit perturbed about, for example, is that a lot of our medical students don't know dialects and don't know Malay and don't know Tamil and everybody just speaks mother tongue and English. And you know when you're sick and you're elderly and you're sick, you really, really want to communicate in your dialect. Very interesting in Singapore, for example, we have the Japanese community here. They only insist on seeing a Japanese doctor. Yes. So there's actually a special provision by the Singapore government to allow Japanese doctors to practice in Singapore to look after the Japanese community. That's why if you go look at the Parkway Hospitals or Raffles or some of the other groups, they actually have Japanese clinics yeah, staffed by Japanese doctors. I think there's a quota on the number of Japanese doctors that can come into Singapore to practice and to look after the Japanese community. In fact, I know a couple of them. <laughs> so I think that's what I have to say about diversity. And the next thing I want to talk about is mobility. I think mobility is something that we really have to talk about because in Singapore, there are a lot of barriers to mobility. For example, economic growth. If you have good economic growth, it's a rising tide. Everybody benefits. So even your bottom strata of society will rise with the tide. In the early days of Singapore, of course, when we were having fantastic growth rates of close to double-digit growth, it was much better off. Today, the growth rates low single digits, and that is a way with a mature economy, unfortunately. So economic growth is one barrier in a way, the today's slower economic growth to mobility. Another interesting aspect about mobility in Singapore is what they call assortative relationships or marriage. For example, a graduate marry a graduate. It's that kind of assortment. And therefore, that creates barriers to mobility. Because obviously, children of a pair of graduates have a kind of head start compared to perhaps a non-graduate union. The third aspect is psychological burden of being in a disadvantaged position. And I think that is a very powerful factor that we always have to think about. In our work in SMA Charity Fund, we try our best to understand this psychological burden. And we believe that giving this cash and pocket money is very important. And the fact that you have this income that is already in your hand, it helps with the psychological burden tremendously. So these are some of the things that are barriers to mobility in Singapore. And we are always cognizant of these barriers when we do our work at SMA Charity Fund. The last thing we want to talk about is inequality. Now, inequality is really a huge topic by itself. I think it was the highest, if I'm not mistaken, in 07, just before the Lehman crisis. And at that point in time, it was obvious that the whole world had run away with 
senseless economic growth of some sort. Really, the inequality was tremendous. And so the layman was a huge correction, huge market crash. And at a point in time, the interestingly enough, the Gini coefficient was at the highest. It was about 4.482. In the next decade after layman was about 0.46. Today, I think in Singapore, it's about 0.45. With government handouts, the government trying very hard to address these inequalities with GST vouchers, utility vouchers and grants for housing flats and so on, I think it's dropped to about 0.398. The government trying their best to address inequality, but still a lot of barriers in terms of inequality. Somebody broke it down into three levels, which is micro, miso, and macro level. For example, at the micro level was the family themselves, the family members, and then so on, the dynamics in between the family members, and of course, bad or good decisions they made. At a miso level, it was more like the vulnerable people in Singapore, the vulnerable families, and how organizations that were around could be matched to help them, kind of matching of resources. The macro picture would be broad changes, broad mega trends in society. Example, robotics, AI, or even autonomous vehicles. How are these going to affect jobs? For example, the bottom strata of society, taxi drivers, for example, might be out of a job one day. Truck drivers, container drivers might be out of a job one day. You can see that these are some of the big trends. And we're so worried that AI will replace a lot of jobs. Even, for example, my radiologist colleagues are very worried about AI intruding onto their turf. So these are some of the big things about inequality that we have to be mindful of. Our SMA Charity Fund is always very mindful of these three big things. And so we try our best to address these issues. Of course, you might say that, oh, we just give a cash grant every year to a needy student. But I think it really hit the sweet spot. And one more interesting thing that you may not be aware of that we give money to is a student who has been invited to a conference to present a paper or a poster. We actually fund part of his expenses. This gives that student an opportunity to go abroad. And it's a fantastic opportunity because he or she has earned the right. She has actually submitted a paper or a poster and it was accepted. We feel that this is a very important aspect of empowering uh, needy students. So Dr. Chong, I think you talked about this a little bit, or oh, like the Cantonese-speaking AMA and the Japanese doctors in Singapore. Could you elaborate a bit more on why is access to medical education for all medical students important? And how does the SMA Charity Fund help with this? We do see actually from the statistics when we have applicants for the fund that 20% of the students are from the bottom 20% of the economic strata. When we receive applications for these students, we can see they are really financially challenged and you can actually see from the data. So we are very happy that this group of students are able to come into medical school to give us that diversity. And it is a problem that because medical school is actually expensive, as I've spoken about earlier, or is there's transportation moving from varsity to hospital. You can't wear jeans and t-shirt to the ward to see your patients. And medical school books and instruments are expensive. There are actually students from the bottom strata of society who can make it to medicine, but who don't dare to apply for medicine because it's so expensive. So we've tried very hard to make sure that this does not happen with what we're doing with the charity fund. We also know that a lot of these students are actually giving a lot of tuition to support themselves and even their families. 
So we really want to free up the time for them so that they can enjoy their varsity days, be able to recharge themselves after a long day in awards or in of lectures and so on. And there's, of course, a lot of self-studying going on. So you can imagine if you have to give tuition all the time after school, it'll be quite challenging. Bearing in mind this thing about inequality, you and I know that inequality is really big on certain people's minds. So for example, I'd like to tell you a little story. In May last year, when we had our SMA dinner, I was about to take over the chair and the guest of honour happened to be everybody's favourite minister, Taman Shamugaratnam. Taman's father, Professor Shamugaratnam, is quite a legend in his own right, you know. He worked until his 90s and is really a giant in the pathology field. So we've always felt somewhat have some affinity for minister himself because of his father. What happened was during the dinner, my predecessor gave a talk on the SMA charity fund during the dinner because that is one of our ways of raising the profile of the charity. And we told minister about this problem, about how the lower socioeconomic strata students who are very bright did not dare to apply for medicine because medicine was seen as a very expensive kind of discipline to be in as a university student. So hence, three months later, to our pleasant surprise, during the National Day Rally, Prime Minister announced that if you came from the bottom 20% of the population, your school fees will be kept at $5,000 a year. So that went from about 140000 to 25000 for the five years. So this is an incredible kind of concession, isn't it? Thereafter, I wrote an email to Minister to thank him for what part he had to play with in this little pleasant surprise. And of course, he answered diplomatically that our initiative and our motivation to make sure that no student is denied a medical education, even if he or she was from the bottom strata of society, he actually commended that we had this objective and motive. We know that Minister Taman is actually quite careful and got his eye on the ball with regards to inequality in Singapore. It is not often said, but we know this to be true. And it is actually all these social safety nets that have contributed to a huge win in 2015. Of course, Lee Kuan Yew, right? A demise that gave them such a result. But let's not forget that there was actually Chas and MediShield life. And in some ways, we're very, very happy that students have this concession, especially those from the bottom strata of society. We saw some interesting statistics about Professor Tambaya's data on how 20% of the medical students actually come from the bottom 20% of the strata. Yeah, 60% came from above the median income in Singapore. So that begs the question, does this mean that you end up with a situation, yes, at the lower end of the economic ladder, you have 20% of the medical students' quota being filled by the bottom 20% of the population, and that ensures that there's uplift, there's mobility. Mobility for this group of students, I think, is very important because if a student from this bottom 20% of the population becomes a doctor, I think it's one, psychologically to overcome the burden of being disadvantaged. Two, economically, he'll live his family and maybe even his extended family into a different level. And also, one very important aspect is that he will also ensure that the health of his family and his extended family and clan will also be lifted. 
And that is something everybody forgets, is that if you are disadvantaged, you also ignore your health. I think when a medical student comes from the bottom 20% of population, there are actually a lot of benefits that are not measured and they could be quite, in a way, intangible. Of course, you have the tangible benefits, but you also have a lot of intangibles from overcoming the psychology of being disadvantaged and then lifting the overall health of those around you, your family, extended family, and perhaps even your clan. So I think there are some definite pluses to this. As for the other aspect of it, which is more and more elite students coming into the system, at the end of the day, there may be some issues when it comes to connecting with, for example, the ordinary man in the street. There's a kind of disconnect or a lack of empathy. I like to think not. People, despite coming from the upper stratas of society, and hopefully our admissions uh, process would have picked up people who are warmer, who are more empathic, and I like to think that. But of course, it may not be so, and the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. <laughs> and I know that, for example, the medical school's admissions boards are seriously track their students' progress through the years. And every time I know that, for example, there is an event where something happens to a doctor, they actually will look back at the admission process of this particular doctor. And this is actually something that they do. But I'm not sure whether they tell you this. There's a lot of talk about elitism in Singapore and with the recent general election, even more talk. At the end of the day, we certainly don't want to build an elite class in Singapore, whether it's in medicine or elsewhere. Okay, Dr. Chong. I think I just want to pick up a bit about the point of assortive mating, which you mentioned earlier in your first question. I was thinking, maybe could you talk a bit about the effects of this assortive mating in terms of in medical school and how it could affect a young medical student's future? At the end of the day, your question is really about inside the medical school class, right? What sort of mixture of medical students you have? So you obviously have those that come from elite schools and you have those that come from disadvantaged or challenged circumstances. You also have, for example, parents who are doctors. One or both of them are doctors. I think your question is asking me whether this confers a natural advantage to some students versus others. Well, I can tell you something about medicine is that at the medical student level, we are converting you from a layman to a doctor in five years. That is only the beginning of the journey. Now, from there, junior residencies and then senior residencies and then eventually consultant levels and so on, the road of medicine is a long one. And I think that a lot of the thinking and thought processes that gets polished will not be polished during medical school. It's just about converting you from a layman to a doctor. I think a lot of the thinking and that polish clinical thinking that you admire in your professors and so on, a lot of it comes in later years of your practice, for example, in residency and so on. So sometimes in medicine, for example, I think you understand this. You may read about a particular topic and you read and you read and you read and it doesn't seem to make sense to you. Even after you graduate, it still doesn't make sense to you. But perhaps when you are training for your specialty exams and so on, or your residency, 
then you read more about that particular topic. And even then, it still doesn't make sense to you until your professor comes along and you ask him a question and he tosses you what I call the key to the chapter. He'll just give you one phrase or two phrases and voila, you use this key and you open that whole chapter on that topic and suddenly everything falls into place. Now, if you haven't done your work and he tosses you the key, it'll be pearls before swine. You just don't know the value of that key. So I think a lot of medicine is really a marathon. It's not a sprint. And even though you have parents who are doctors, I think it's not so easy for them to impart that kind of high-level thinking to a student. So I think in medical school, literally everybody is on the same level playing field. It is not so easy to move ahead just because you've got parents who are doctors. Now, for the other advantages that obviously a person from a upper socioeconomic class enjoys versus somebody who is financially challenged, I think this is a huge topic by itself and perhaps there are some soft skills that may be imparted by coming from a upper strata of society versus a challenge situation. Yes, I think it's always called social capital. So for example, who you know, what you know, and how you behave in certain situations and how you use your cutlery and whether you know what wine this is. <laughs> I think a lot of this is really quite subtle and nuanced. And whether it is going to be that useful in medicine, I'm not so sure. For example, one of the interesting things is I don't care where your MBBS comes from. If I talk to a junior doctor and I ask him a few questions, and within a few minutes, I'll know where exactly to place him in the packing order. I know how good he is. I don't care whether he's got a nice brand name, MBBS or not. Right? So that's the egalitarian thing about medicine. Medicine truly, you are who you are, how good you are, and it doesn't matter on which university you came from. And unlike many other sectors, a brand name from an Ivy League, for example, will matter in the financial world. But in medicine, really, it doesn't really matter so much. Inside the medical school, of course, you'll be a microcosm of society and you will definitely have the have-nots and so on. But I think we're all on a pretty level playing field and everybody's within striking the distance of each other. It's just like a 100-meter race, right? At the end, you just accelerate and breast the tape ahead of the guys. So I call it within striking distance. So that's something I use. So aside from donating money to the SMA Charity Fund, what else can the medical community or the other medical students do to combat this rising inequality within the medical community? I think what we've done is, for example, we've had more than 10 years of recipients and we've actually tracked down some of our recipients and they've graduated and I've written a number of emails to them to ask to contribute in kind or a donation. For example, we had a situation where we asked a number of doctors who were our recipients whether they felt that they benefited from the charity fund and what has happened to them in today's context. So for example, when I first wrote a letter to some of these fund recipients, I asked them that, look, I'm not soliciting donations from you, but actually I want to know what has happened to you since medical school. And we had beautiful letters written back from some of these recipients. And we've asked them permission for these letters 
not to be printed out in a newsletter or in SMA news, but rather to be sent to our donors so that the loop will be closed. This is one of the initiatives we have done to try to close the loop. So when I took over the charity fund last year, one of the things we did was to host a reception for our recipients to give them the check. And it was quite nice talking to all these recipients these young men and women. And I tell you something, I couldn't tell the difference between them and other medical students. And I think that goes to show how resilient they are. Despite coming from very challenged circumstances, their resilience was quite admirable and remarkable. I think that's something we always forget, how tough and how resilient some people are to have come all this way. Indeed, I'm very grateful. I would like actually the students listening into this podcast to try to tell everyone about the SMA Charity Fund because we really want to reach out to everyone who is eligible. And also those recipients who are listening in, I would love you to come back to me even when you are no longer, for example, your financial circumstances may change and you may no longer need to apply to us. But I would still love for you to come back and give us some feedback or help us in some way. We have one of our board of directors is a previous recipient, Roland. So I've actually tasked him to form sort of a little subcommittee of previous recipients. And perhaps this is one way that everybody can join this particular subcommittee and help out in some way, brainstorm some ideas and see whether we can bring our charity fund to the next level. I'm not only looking at recipients who are very graduated, I would also welcome recipients still in medical school whose circumstances might have changed for the better. So I think that's one way that we can all help each other. You see, the thing about this SMA Charity Fund is really closing the loop. It's doctors helping doctors, right? Ultimately, we're all colleagues. We're all part of the same community. So this is the best way to pay it forward. Thank you all for listening. Just want to give a shout out to Erica Nyam, composer of our wonderful introductory music. The piece is called Locked In, which was first performed at the Sing Health Humanizing Healthcare concert in December of 2019. If you like this episode and would like to find out more about the podcast, you can follow us at Third Spacing on Instagram or check out our website, thirdspacingpodcast.wordpress.com.